We're continuing in our sermon series on Journey to Jerusalem, and this is a section of Scripture in the book of Luke, where Jesus is giving all of his disciples kind of the core information about what they need to know before he is crucified. And this is actually going to take us quite a while. I didn't realize just how much information he was going to give them, but we're going to take this right through the end of July, actually. So if you get tired, we'll, we'll change the title and we'll just keep going in Luke. Pretend like we're doing a different series in, uh, in June and July. Um, keep your lamps burning. Luke chapter 12, verse 35 is where we're going to be in today. If you want to follow along in your Bibles at home or there's a pew Bible in front of you if you want to use that as well. Let's look at the next slide. There we go. Anyone feel like that? I mean, I appreciate it. When I, when I was looking in the foyer, watching people coming in, it's just exciting for me when people are coming and arriving. It's like a, like a beehive. All these, you know, bees just coming in and in and in in the house and going out afterwards. It's a, it's a busy place, but it's exciting to see people coming to hear a word from the Lord. But as I look past the foyer and out into the street, I just see hundreds of cars going by without any kind of clue or interest in what God is doing. And uh, one day, according to this passage, they're going to be really surprised because they'll get to see Jesus face to face. Uh, Whether they acknowledge his presence now or ever, everybody gets a chance to stand before him one day. Passage today, it starts off with a very interesting command. Of Jesus. So Jesus is actually talking to his disciples, but there's a lot of other people listening in. In fact, uh, Peter's going to ask uh, in verse 41, are you talking to us <laughs> or are you talking to everyone out there? And clearly it's not just the disciples who need to be ready. It's uh, all people, all followers of Christ. So let's read this passage together, uh, starting in verse 35 of Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning, and be like the men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him uh, at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, and then have them recline at a table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third watch and finds them awake, Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? I just love how Jesus doesn't answer his question, just keeps going. He says, And then who is the faithful wise manager, Jesus continues, whom his his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, "Hmm, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and and an hour he does not know, will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant, who knew his master 
master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will require a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So in the previous section, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Neil was talking about riches and money and wealth and how people were depending more on their money than they were on God. They had a a longer standing relationship with their finances than they did with their Lord. There's a danger of depending on the money and greed and seeking wealth over seeking God's provisions. So this next section is going to address uh, the importance of being faithful, standing ready, being good stewards of what God has entrusted to you. So a couple of generations ago, uh, if you found a good job, you stayed in it for the rest of your life. You just, you hold on, it's a good job, whether I like it or not, whether I get promoted or not sometimes, you just, you just go, you get your lunch every morning, same routine, you get your lunch ready, you get to work, uh, you do your job, you come home, and you live, live for the weekends. The work wasn't what you live for, uh, the weekends were. I remember my... Uh, my father-in-law, he stays uh, in the same company as a teenager stocking shelves all the way to being a vice president of the same company in his retirement. He never changed jobs. The, job was, the company was bought out a couple of different times. He just stayed faithful, the same job, all the way till his retirement. And, you know, it's amazing that he could have a job that long. But I looked at him as like, he's just he's a good worker. He's a hard worker. He stayed faithful the whole time. But times have changed. A recent Gallup poll determined that uh, millennials have a reputation for job hopping. Unattached to organizations and institutions, people born between 1980 and 1996 are said to move more freely from company to company, more so than any other generation. 21% of millennials... uh, say they've changed jobs within the last year, which is more than three times the number of non-millennials surveyed. It's like they're always looking for the next, the next job, the next um, place that they fit better or aligns better with their values or their direction or what they want to achieve. So the job has to really fit who they are more than they're fitting what the job is. Many employers say they have trouble getting and keeping staff these days because staff are jumping from job to job without much consideration for the company loyalty or fulfilling obligations. So, millennials, um, it, it is a different generation, right? We've come through a digital age, and I also think that COVID has had a huge impact on our psyche, on our uh, view of life, uh, on what is important to people today. It's not the same. We've, there's been a, a, a serious transition uh, from what was to what is today, and I think we're still trying to figure out what it is today. We don't really have a good grasp on social values and, and what people are looking for. We're, we're still learning. For millennials, it's not about how hard they work compared to previous generations, rather how well the job fits with their own personal values. So if another job fits better with their personal values, a work-life balance, uh, to stay at home, work in the office balance that they're looking for, of course they're going to go to the next job. That's, 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 there isn't that lifelong kind of a view of jobs anymore. Jobs 
helped with the lifestyle that today's generation wants to fit. So in this particular passage, Jesus is talking about the kind of employees he's looking for. You can swap out the word uh, disciple, if you like, instead of employee, but he's, he wants to talk about what he's expecting to see in those who follow him. So he turns to the metaphorical Roman household, the domus, as in domicile, where there is a master and servants, and uh, the head of the Roman family. Is there a slide about a house or something like that? There we go. So the ancient Roman villa, a lot of them had courtyards, a lot of them had pools. If you were a little bit, you know, middle to upper class type of thing, lots of artwork. They had servants, they had slaves at this time as well. And uh, whoever was the oldest male in the family would be in charge. So if it's the uncle, the grandpa, the dad, whoever the oldest male in the household was ruled the household, the father of the family. They called it the pater familias. They looked after the family's business affairs, the property, could perform religious rites on their behalf. Uh, it was a very uh, complex kind of a social structure based on a nuclear family. Uh, and so Jesus talks about the master, the head of the household, going away, perhaps to a wedding. And weddings actually could take days. You could have a week-long wedding feast, including ceremonies and parties and all of that kind of stuff. It was very expensive, very time-consuming. And you didn't quite know when the master might come home. It's not like, I'll be home at 2 o'clock. They didn't actually have watches back then either. So I'll be home after sundown. Oh, well, when's that going to be? 2, 3, 4, 5, six. I don't know. When I, when I come, I come. And it may not even be tonight. It may be tomorrow. But the master doesn't want to come home and find the door locked. Hello? <laughs> Hello? I'm home. It says that when he comes home, he wants the servants to be ready, waiting for him, open the door. Welcome home, master. Glad you made it back safe. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, Jesus says. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. If he comes and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Verse 40, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I'm going to say a couple of long words here for you. This passage focuses on the vigilance in the face of eschatological crisis, which means... Stay ready because Jesus is coming. Eschatology, the study of the end times. Uh, you don't know when it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. We know he's coming back. He's promised he's coming back. We just don't know when. In fact, Jesus himself said, I'm not even sure when it's going to be. Only the Father knows. I just know I've got to be ready for when I'm called up. Trumpets are getting ready. The angels are polishing the trumpets. You know, you're going to blow the trumpets when it's time, but we don't know. Stay ready. Keep your hand to the plow. Look straight ahead, not to the right or to the left, so you don't miss when your Lord will return and be, and, and be found unaware. So in the midst of many priorities in life, in the face of a myriad of distractions and voices calling for our attention, each person, every servant of Jesus, must decide what is most important in their life, what his or her priorities are. It's easy to think everybody, everything's important when it's really not. There's got to be the core values, the core important, the most important things. Verse 34, it says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. AD 72, 
Mount Vesuvius blew its lid. It completely covered with ash two uh, Herculeum and Pompeii uh, were both covered by ash. And then after the ash had dumped a huge load, covered everything, then lava came and covered that and sealed it for generations to come. In fact, they weren't quite sure where these two towns were. And these were extensive towns. Uh, I've seen Pompeii as one of my life, one of my bucket goals in my life. Ever since I saw a National Geographic magazine on Pompeii, I said, I got to go there. I got to see it some years ago. And it's fascinating. The excavations made by the government authorities to restore this ancient city of Pompeii, uh, the workmen discovered the bones of a Roman soldier in the sentry box at one of the city's gates. The Roman soldier was told to stay at his post. Even in the face of danger, to hold until they were relieved by a replacement. They found him still at his post, even though the city was being encased by ash. And he was overcome by fumes, still had a spear and a shield at his post. Jesus is saying a disciple's job is to stay ready, to be ever watching for the return of Christ. I was trying to think of what picture best represented this concept. Um, And I thought of this guy. You know, a security guy, um, maybe he's CIA, maybe he's just a security. His job is to be ever watchful. He's got to see every detail. He's got to protect the person he's assigned to protect. I had lunch with a security guy uh, this week, and um, fascinating people that he's been able to, he's hired to go, they send him to Toronto to, 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 to do uh, movie stars or uh, entertainers or different t- types of people. They pay him a good wage just to be, and I can see him, you know, in the background. He's not looking at the guy he's protecting, he's looking at everything else to make sure that no one's going to get to his client. I think about that, ever ready, ever watchful, waiting to see what's happening next, anticipating uh, what, what action he's going to take. Question, what would distract you from your duty to Christ? Or what would cause you to walk away from your assigned tasks? It's, it's a rhetorical question, by the way, so... Is there anything that would distract you from what Christ has called you to do? Now, in verse 32, it talks about a reward, a reward for being found faithful. It says, do not fear, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's saying, all my faithful servants, all my people that have been following me and and waiting for me and anticipating that I'm coming back, I mean, when I come, they're found faithful, They're, they're, they're at their post, they're doing what I've asked them to do, they're on their knees praying, they're serving, they're helping, they're giving, they're doing everything that I would have done if I was still there. And when I came, I found them faithful. I'm gonna give them the kingdom. Who gets rewarded? The ones who stay ready and are there when the master comes back. So what do you need to take care of before Christ comes back? Are there things you're putting off to the last minute, until the last possible moment to do before you die? I know that some people say, well, I'm not really ready to submit to Christ yet. I kind of want to have fun until the very end. Then I'll pray, God, take my soul. 
And I was like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. He wants to see if, if your heart belongs to him, not, not some kind of a fire insurance thing for the last minute. Do you actually love him? Do you actually want to be a part of what he's up to? Do you want him to, to be changing you and, and helping you to become all that you're supposed to be in Christ, the Holy Spirit working inside of you, or do you just want to, oh yeah, I want to get to heaven? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not kind of like that in the end. So three things. Uh, we need to, one, we'll go to the next slide. We want to avoid some things, and we want to stay alert for some things. The first thing, we want to avoid spiritual lethargy. You know, where you kind of just maybe show up to church and you hang out for a while, but that's kind of the, the, the extent of spiritual input into your life. Whether you remember what the pastor says from day to day or not, not so important. I mean, I'm saved. I'll make it to heaven one day. What happens between now and then? Eh, I'm just going to coast along. Maybe I have a few spiritual highs, come to the worship night and uh, have, a, have a good time there, but not really into this religious stuff. And, you know, I, read, I don't like reading, so maybe I could put the Bible on, like, audio in my car or something. Spiritual lethargy. How do you avoid spiritual lethargy? Well, we're supposed to stay alert for the king. We've got to be ready in case he calls us into action. You know, if he's our Lord, he has a right to move us into action anytime he wants, any place, even at McDonald's when you're in the, in the drive-thru or you're, you're at a movie theater, where, wherever you are, you are supposed to be ready in case he calls. I need you to step in and help. I need you to, to pray for that person. I need you to give to that, that person that's hurting right now. Whatever it is, you got to stay alert. Second thing, avoid spiritual complacency. It's, lethargy is more like lazy. Just sheer laziness in the spiritual life. Complacency is like, I don't really care. I don't really care if the people outside go to hell. I don't really care, you know, about missionaries so much. They, 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 they do their thing. I do my thing. You know, I give money in the plate. I can go help those guys out. Don't really care what's going on in society. Just keep, keep my head down. Don't really get involved too much. Spiritual complacency. Well, you can believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe. How do you avoid spiritual complacency? It says we should stay not only alert, but focused on the king. Where are our eyes? What are we looking at? What are we, what are we chasing after? What are we filling our minds with week by week? Is it godly things? Is it spiritual things? Kingdom things? Or is it everything else? I looked at the magazine rack the other day. I, was, I may have been in the airport or something, and and, you know, there's a hundred different things you can put in your mind. You, there's everything from hunting to, to knitting to house design to fishing to muscle building to whatever, entertainment, movies, anything you want. You can fill your mind with lots of stuff. How much are we putting in our minds that doesn't matter, that's corrupting our thinking, that's putting the world's ways into us constantly instead of the kingdom ways? Well, another thing, and this may sound odd, but we need to avoid spiritual contentment. We should never be content where we are in our walk with God. We should want more. We should want to be going deeper. We should want to spend more time with him. We, we're not like, I'm good. No, I'm good. I, I read the devotional in the morning, and I, I say my prayers before I go to bed at night. And I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. 
Are you really? Because I don't think we stay still with God. We either, we either go down or we go up, but we don't stay the same, I don't think. So how do we avoid that? Well, we have to expect that the king is coming. Do we want to be found faithful when he shows up? Are, are we going to be involved in what he's, what he's doing? Are we pressing on? So this last weekend, we had our Alpha weekend yesterday, uh, talking about the, how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, so between Thursday, uh, Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, two people that are attending Alpha were saved. They just gave their life to Christ. And I'd like to say, do you know why? Because there's people not content with letting people just do whatever they want. We have people praying hard that these people would come to Christ, that they would give their lives to Christ, that they would submit to him as their Lord and their Savior. We're not content with status quo. We don't want to just coast along. We want to be, we want to be achieving. We're in a battle, folks. This is a, it's a battleground, a spiritual warfare. We don't want to be just content. We've got to fight. We've got to make progress. Peter said, Lord, are you talking to us in verse 41? Or is this for everyone else? I think the disciples were a bit confused at this point. What is Jesus talking about? They didn't know he was going to be crucified, right? They didn't know he was going to heaven. They just thought that he was going to establish a kingdom. What is he talking about coming back? Is he going to a wedding? Is he, is he going out some random place to, to, to walk around and pray and then show up all of a sudden? So Peter asked for clarification, which, of course, Jesus uh, decides to make things even more fuzzy. Who then is the faithful wise manager, Jesus says, verse 42, whom the master will set over his household and give him the portion of food at the proper time? He will set him over all of his possessions. So the implication here, and this is maybe hard to to hear or say, uh, the implication is that out of all the servants that he had at his household, there's only one that was found faithful. There's only one that he was going to bless and set over his kingdom. Only one that he was going to... Actually, the master says, when he, Jesus, when the master comes back, he's going to find that servant. And that one that's faithful, who's standing there waiting for, for what, when he came back. And he's actually going to dress himself, put the servant at the table, bring food for the servant, and serve the servant. That's pretty special. But there was only one. There wasn't a group of them. He says, when the master comes and he finds that servant, it just means that there's a whole lot of servants that are not going to be found faithful. A whole lot of people that will put their hand to the plow started well, but they got distracted. They, they meant well. They mean well. They, they intend to do good things and be involved in God's kingdom, but they just kind of get, never get around to it. And when the master shows up, he's not going to find them faithful. Then comes the warning. But if the servant is supposed to be faithful, says to himself, my master is delaying and coming. He begins to mistreat the servants, eat and drink and get drunk. When the master of that servant comes on a day when he doesn't expect in an hour he doesn't know, he will cut him to pieces, put him with the unfaithful. So there's, a, there's an idea of, actual an idea of punishment. Now, this is a metaphor, it is a parable that Jesus is telling, so every detail doesn't actually apply directly to Christianity today, per se. Uh, it sounds very harsh. 
If you look through the parables of Jesus, you'll find a lot of them uh, put severe punishments in here. Some servants are going to be cast out, beaten and cast out, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and into a lake of fire, going, what are you talking about? Yeah, there's actually punishment involved. There's lots of blessing, yes, for all the faithful, for those that are derelict in their duties. There's actually punishment. And, and he was in a very uh, challenging society. This was a harsh society. These were not always nice, godly, kind people. Um, I guess in these days, if you had servants that weren't being faithful, you had to teach them a lesson. I don't know. There's got to be... And here, this is just normal, everyday kinds of understanding that his audience would know, would understand. So what's the key? How do we stay focused? How do we stay ready? I've got a few verses to, to suggest. One is Psalm 42.1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul, it thirsts for God, for the living God. What does your soul thirst for? Your soul is at the core of your being, not just a passing fancy, but at the center of who you are. When all else in your life, goals and dreams and wishes and bucket lists is stripped away, do you still love God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind? Do you thirst for God, want to be in his presence, to, to hang out with him, to, to, to watching for him constantly? Second verse, Psalm 27, David says, One thing I've desired of the Lord, one thing that I'm going to seek after, I just want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. I just want to hang out with God. I want to be where he is. I don't want to be distracted by all these other things that are taking my attention away from the one most important person in my life. Another translation says, my one, one prayer that I have made to the Lord, and this is my heart's desire, that I may have a place in the house of the Lord, all the days of my life, looking on his glory, getting wisdom in his temple. Another verse I would have us look at is Philippians 3.13. Paul, New Testament, says, My friends, I don't feel that I have already arrived, but I forget what's behind, and I struggle for what is ahead. I run towards the goal so that I can win the prize of being called to heaven. This is the prize that God offers because of what Christ has done. Never forget that we are in an ongoing battle, right? We're in an Olympic-sized contest constantly, and we cannot lose our focus. We cannot take our eyes off the prize for one minute. That's when Satan gets in. That's when the devil comes in to, 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 to distract us, to tell us that it's not so important about kingdom things. This is more important. Your career is more important. Your kids are more important. Your family is more important. And then you have to understand that all of a sudden you've taken God off of the throne of your life and put him in some cabinet somewhere else where he can't bother you or be so prominent in your life anymore. Last verse is Ephesians 4.4. <clears throat> one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is, uh, of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 one. A singular hope and a singular Lord and a singular God and a singular calling. In other words, nothing else should compete for first place in your heart, not your job, not your husband or wife or a kid can have first place in your heart. 
Paul talks about running a race and finally crossing the line only to find out that you were disqualified along the way. You don't want that. The final lesson comes in verse 48 in this passage. It says, But the one who did not know, servant who was clueless, and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So you're just average, ordinary Joe Christian, or Jane Christian, you know, so much is required. You want to be a teacher? Well, more is going to be required. You want to be a discipleship person, a mentor, a life group leader? Well, more is going to be required. You want to be an elder in the church? More is going to be required. There's, there's, a, there's a bar that keeps raising. You have a larger example, a, a, a different kind of a mentor and a, a model of what it means to be a Christian. You want to be a pastor? Ooh. <laughs> it's almost hard to reach the bar that, that Christ sets, and when pastors fail, the, the congregation is, is all impacted. If a, if a life group leader fails morally or something, then a certain number are. But when, an entire, when a pastor fails, the entire body of Christ is impacted. And that's the, the, the results of failure have a much wider impact, and that's why the standards are so high. I like the, uh, the Alliance Church. Um, I wasn't Alliance before I came here. Now I are one, and I, I went through the, the credentialing process, and they also put me on notice that they could make me redo my ordination as well if they saw they needed to do that, and I was like, like that's a lot. I'm like in my 50s, and I can't go back and do all of that stuff. They said, well, you want to be an Alliance pastor? You know, you got to do it our way. I'm going, okay, here we go, and... Um, you know, I have friends that said, oh, I thought about becoming an Alliance pastor, but it's too, too hard, too much work. And I'm going, well, that's probably a good thing then. But so much more is required. They want to make sure they have the right people leading their churches. You can be proud of the, the amount of uh, expectation that the Alliance uh, districts put on those that want to serve in their churches so uh, there are harsh consequences, but um, it's interesting. I, I came across this story this last week, 1980s and the early 90s. You heard of a guy named Jimmy Baker? Jimmy and Tammy Faye? Sorry, I don't have the makeup. I think there was a song made about her lips or something. I don't know what her makeup kind of things. But Jimmy Baker in the late 80s and early 90s started the largest Christian television network in the world. He also had theme parks that he did, Christian heritage places you could go as a family. He had condos and apartment blocks, but it turned out uh, there was a lot of fraud involved, that he was taking money from this person and giving, not doing what he said he was going to do. And he, he also, it was found out, committed adultery uh, with a woman named Jessica Hahn, I believe. Uh, he also was convicted of mail fraud. So in 1994, the government prosecuted him for all of these things and uh, sent him to prison. John Bevere visited him while in prison, and after they talked for a while, John asked Jimmy, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? Was it when you committed adultery with Jessica Hahn? Was it the fraud, the greed? When did you stop loving Jesus? 
And he says, Jimmy looked at him and said, John, I didn't fall out of love with Jesus. I loved him all the way through it. He said, I love Jesus. I just didn't fear God. Millions of Christians in America and Canada who love Jesus but don't fear him. And it's the fear of the Lord that protects, or perfects holiness in our life. And the soldier found at his post feared what would happen if he left his duty. And that the punishments that Jesus talks about in these parables, they sound really harsh and severe, but he's saying, you know, there is a certain amount of fear of the Lord that we need to keep in mind, that God is not mocked, that we will sow what we reap. Jesus is going to return at an undetermined time. We know that. We are expecting him to come again, just as he said. Nobody's given advance notice. It will be a pleasant surprise when he does come to bring his faithful ones, both the living and the dead, from around the whole earth to be with him to a place he's been preparing for them. I keep trying to imagine what it would be like when I hear that trumpet sound and I see Christ coming in the clouds with his whole army of angels, just as he said. What will I feel like? What emotion? What t- will I just go weak at the knees and say, thank you, God, I knew you'd come? Or would I be terrified, like, oh, no. Oh, no. It says Christ will come back in the same way he left, in the clouds of his angel army, and all the earth will see it. There's confusion these days about Christ's second coming. So let me give you just a, quick, a couple of quick hermeneutical principles. How do, you, how do you interpret the Bible? First of all, the clear teachings are always carrying more weight than the unclear ones. When Jesus says, I will come in the same way as I left, that's pretty clear. He's not going to sneak back secretly. He left publicly. He will come back publicly, and all the world will know. Secondly, we judge all the other writings of Christ's return against the clear teachings of Jesus. What did he say about it? Not what did everybody else say about it. Well, what did Jesus say about his own return? I put far more weight on what he said than trying to interpret what everyone else said about him. Some people think that Christ already came back, but that doesn't line up with what Jesus said about it. So how do we handle this passage? I got three things. Pretty easy. First, just love him with all your heart and all your strength and all your soul and all your mind, just as he asked. Pretty straightforward. Second, make it your one, des- one desire, your only desire to know him. Keep that as a priority over everything else. If you haven't had time to spend with him, then you're too busy with other things. What needs to go so that you can put him at the center of your life? Third, determine that your sole purpose in life will be to press on towards a goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then, then you'll be dressed and ready. Then when he comes, you won't be embarrassed or ashamed, or anything, except thrilled. Let's pray. Father God, you're telling us the same thing you told your disciples, that you're looking for faithful servants, people that are not bored with Christianity, people that are not lethargic, complacent, content, 
But they were striving on. We're running the race. We're reaching forward that prize, letting everything else that has been trapping us and holding us back, letting it go so that we can reach forward to what you have for us in our life, for what you want us to be involved in, for your transforming presence of the Holy Spirit in us, helping us to fulfill all that you put before us to do. Father God, as we enter a time of worship, of uh, communion, of the Lord's Supper now, let us do this with... uh, clarity of mind. We call you Lord, Lord's Supper, but sometimes we don't act as if you're our Lord. We act as if you are our servant, chasing after us, blessing us, answering our prayers, doing everything we want you to do, when in fact it's not that way. Father God, may we be waiting on you. May we, even today, honor you and make a fresh and a new commitment, striving to be worthy of the calling you have called us according to your grace. And pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.